This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I am your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the January 6th through the 12th issue of The Economist. And now I'll begin with the cover story, Made in 42, Roadworthy in 24. The man supposed to block the return of Donald Trump is an unpopular 81-year-old. Blame Democrats' cowardice and complacency. American politics is paralyzed by a contradiction as big as the Grand Canyon. Democrats rage about how recycling Donald Trump would doom their country's democracy, and yet is deciding who to put up against him in November's election. The party looks as if it will meekly submit to the candidacy of an 81-year-old with the worst approval rating of any modern president at this stage in his term. How did it come to this? Joe Biden's net approval rating stands at minus 16 points. Mr. Trump, leading polls in the swing states where the election will be decided, is a coin toss away from a second presidential win. Even if you do not see Mr. Trump as a potential dictator, that is an alarming prospect. A substantial share of Democrats would rather Mr. Biden did not run, but instead of either challenging him or knuckling down to support his campaign, they have instead taken to muttering glassy-eyed about the mess they are in. There are no secrets about what makes Mr. Biden so unpopular. Part of it is the sustained burst of inflation that has been laid at his door. Then there is his age. Most Americans know someone in their 80s who is starting to show their years. They also know that no matter how fine that person's character, they should not be given a four-year stint in the world's hardest job. Back in 2023, Mr. Biden could and should have decided to be a one-term president. He would have been revered as a paragon of public service and a rebuke to Mr. Trump's boundless ego. Democratic bigwigs know this. In fact, before their party's better-than-expected showing in the midterms, plenty of party members thought that Mr. Biden would indeed stand aside. This newspaper first argued that the president should not seek re-election over a year ago. Unfortunately, Mr. Biden and his party had several reasons for him fighting one more campaign, none of them good. His sense of duty was tainted by vanity. Having first stood for president in 1987 and labored for so long to sit behind the resolute desk, he has been seduced into believing that his country needs him because he is a proven Trump beater. 
Likewise, his staff's desire to serve has surely been tainted by ambition. It is in the nature of administrations that many of a president's closest advisors will never again be so close to power. Of course, they do not want to see their man surrender the White House in order to focus on his presidential library. Democratic leaders have been cowardly and complacent, like many ooh, pusilli, pusillanimous, pusillanimous congressional Republicans who disliked Mr. Trump and considered him dangerous but could not find it within themselves to impeach or even criticize him, Democratic stalwarts have been unwilling to act on their concerns about Mr. Biden's folly. If that was because of the threat to their own careers, their behaviors was cowardly. If it was thinking that Mr. Trump is his own worst enemy, it was complacent. Mr. Biden's approval ratings have continued to slide, while the 91 criminal charges Mr. Trump faces have so far only made him stronger. Given this, you might think that the best thing would be for Mr. Biden to stand aside. After all, the election is still 10 months away, and the Democratic Party has talent. Alas, not only is that exceedingly unlikely, but the closer you look at what would happen, finding an alternative to Mr. Biden at this stage would be a desperate and unwise throw of the dice. Were he to withdraw today, the Democratic Party would have to frantically recast its primary because filing deadlines have already passed in many states, and the only other candidates on the ballot are a little-known congressman called Dean Phillips and a self-help guru named Marianne Williamson. Assuming this was possible and that the flurry of ensuing lawsuits was manageable, state legislatures would have to approve new dates for the primaries closer to the convention in August. A series of debates would have to be organized so that primary voters knew what they were voting for. The field could well be vast with no obvious way of narrowing it quickly. In the Democratic primary of 2020, 29 candidates put themselves forward. The chaos might be worth it if the party could be sure of going into the election with a young, electable candidate. However, it seems equally possible that the eventual winner would be unelectable. Bernie Sanders, say, a self-declared Democrat socialist who was a year older than Mr. Biden. More likely, the nomination would go to Kamala Harris, the vice president. Miss Harris has the advantage of not being old, though it says something about the Democratic's gerontocracy that she will be 60 in November and is considered youthful. Unfortunately, she has proven to be a poor communicator, a disadvantage in office as well as on the stump. Miss Harris is a creature of California's machine politics and has never successfully appealed to voters outside her state. Her campaign in 2020 was awful. Her auto cue sometimes seems to have been hacked by a satirist. Immigration and the southern border, a portfolio she handles for Mr. Biden, is Mr. Trump's strongest issue and the Democrats' weakest. 
Ms. Harris's chance of beating Mr. Trump look even worse than her boss's. Better, therefore, for Democrats to focus on electing Mr. Biden. The economy promises a soft landing. Workers are setting real wage growth and full employment. Were Mr. Trump convicted, he could yet be punished by voters. Most important is to invigorate the campaign. Democrats need to unlock some excitement and create a sense of possibility about a second term. The president is not a good campaigner and is up against a candidate whose rallies are a cult meeting crossed with a vaudeville show. He needs someone who can speak to crowds and go on television for him. That person is not Ms. Harris. One way she could serve her party and her country and help Mr. Trump out of the White House would be to forswear another term as vice president. As vice president. Mr. Biden could present his second term as a different kind of presidency, one in which he would share more responsibility with the vice president, acting more like a CEO. Either way, Mr. Biden needs the help of an army of enthusiastic Democrats willing to campaign alongside him. At the moment, he and his party are sleepwalking toward disaster. Huffing and Puffing If you had an overindulgent Christmas, you may have begun the new year in a more austere frame of mind. Recent goings-on in the market may therefore seem familiar. As 2023 drew to a close, the American stock market was on a ripping run. It ended this year with nine consecutive weeks of gains, the longest winning streak since 2004. The S&P 500 index of leading American stocks was a whisker away from its all-time high set on January 3, 2022, when investors thought that interest rates would be small and slow. Now, punters are suddenly in a more sober mood, with stocks falling by 1.4% in the first two trading days of the new year. Such modest fluctuations are hardly unusual. Nonetheless, they raise the question of whether the blistering bull market is over or has further to go. For the first 10 months of 2023, the market rally was largely concentrated in seven tech stocks, led by NVIDIA, a maker of the computer chips that are used to process artificial intelligence algorithms. Since then, however, it broadened and gained pace. Firms that mirror the wider economy, such as retailers and banks, soared. J.P. Morgan Chase is up by a quarter since last October. The S&P 500 rose by 14% in the final two months of 2023 and towers 31% above its most recent trough, well above the 20% that is often used to define a bull market. The explanation for the run was a happy mix of strong economic growth, an orderly seduction of inflation, and crucially, an enormous shift in interest rate expectations over the past two months. America's economy expanded at an impressive 
annualized pace of 4.9% in the third quarter. Real-time estimates suggest it grew at a still robust 2.5% in the last three months of the year. In the past three months, core consumer prices have risen at an average annualized pace of just 2.2%, only a smidgen above the Federal Reserve's inflation target. That led to a big shift in investors' expectations for interest rates. In October, they thought one-year rates in a year's time would be close to 5%. Thanks to lower inflation data and a dovish set of forecasts from the Fed, that has fallen to 3.5%. Bond investors see the central bank cutting rates as soon as March and continuing in almost every meeting in 2024. This tantalizing prospect of immaculate disinflation, robust growth, and the promise of easier monetary policy has underpinned the rally. Can the bull market be sustained? Asset prices still have room to rise, although markets are close to the heights they reached after the protracted mania of 2021. That does not mean that things are as excessive now as they were then. In real terms, stock prices remain lower. Valuations are therefore not quite as elevated. Participation by retail investors, which reached a giddy peak of 24 percent of daily trading volumes in early 2021 was steady at around 18 percent in 2023. Moreover, although tech led the charge in both 2021 and 2023, investors this time have been discerning. They have lifted up NVIDIA and Microsoft, but Alphabet, Amazon, and Tesla are all trading below their peak valuations. It is not just Americans excited about AI who are buoying stocks. In dollar terms, European and Japanese equity indices are also within touching distance of their level two years ago. Yet everything hangs on whether investors' ideal economic scenario comes to pass. The expectation that it will help, help that it will helped lift stocks close to a record high last year. But risks to the outlook abound and may have given investors pause in the cold light of January. Inflation in America may not be fully vanquished, not least with the economy still in rude health and the fiscal deficit unusually wide. Strife in the Middle East could cause another commodity price shock. The one-time easing of the supply chain disruptions of the pandemic may be keeping inflation low only temporarily. A downturn may merely be delayed, not dodged. Rises in interest rates may not yet have fully fed through to borrowers. Indeed, history suggests that recessions are hard to spot in real time and tend to catch out central banks. If a If a recession does not arrive, it is still possible that the Fed will not move with as much alacrity as investors hope. To see what will happen in the markets in 2024, watch The Real Economy. 
plain speaking. Backing Ukraine is key to the West's security. Its leaders need to start saying no. What do you do when words start to fail you? In the case of President Volodymyr Zelensky, whose heroic language galvanized the West to support Ukraine after Russia invaded it almost two years ago, the answer is that you become angry and frustrated. Despite his efforts, $61 billion of American, $61 billion of American money that would help Ukraine is being held up in Congress and the European Union has failed to sign off a four-year grant of $50 billion. Ukraine needs arms and money within weeks. Speaking to The Economist in December, Mr. Zelensky was irascible, table-thumping form, far removed from the man we met in Kiev just weeks after Russia struck. His central argument is that when the West helps Ukraine, it is acting in its own interest. Giving us money or giving us weapons, you support yourself, he told us. You save your children, not ours. Mr. Zelensky is right, but his message is is not getting through. Some Western politicians seem to believe Ukraine can slip safely down the agenda. Others think they can gain from obstructing aid. For too long, Western leaders have relied on Mr. Zelensky's oratory to make the case for backing Ukraine. They need to start doing it themselves. This means taking on the argument eroding support for Ukraine, that the failed counteroffensive of 2023 shows it cannot win, that having struggled against its smaller neighbor, Russia poses little threat to NATO, and that the West is wasting money that should be spent elsewhere, including on defenses against China. Those arguments are wrong. Despite its military setback, Ukraine can win this war by emerging as a thriving Western-leaning democracy. Defeating Russia's President Vladimir Putin is not about retaking territory so much as showing the Kremlin that his invasion is a futile exercise, robbing Russia of its young men and its future. With money, arms, and real progress on the accession of Ukraine to the EU, that is still possible. In 2024, a focus of Ukrainian fighting is likely to be Crimea, while the front lines on the mainland shift only slightly. This peninsula is a vital supply route for Russian forces in southern Ukraine. Annexing it in 2014 was a propaganda triumph for Mr. Putin. Successful Ukrainian attacks on Crimea will both hurt Russia's capabilities and embarrass Mr. Putin. An example was the sinking of the Novosherkask, a large island, a large landing ship berthed in Feodosia on the south coast of the peninsula on December 26th. By contrast, if Mr. Putin sees that the West has lost faith in Ukraine, he will not stop. He needs war as an excuse for his repressive rule. 
Visiting a military hospital on January 1st, he declared his hostility toward Western countries. The point is not that they are helping our enemy, he said. They are our enemy. Those who argue that Russia is not strong enough to pose a threat to the West are forgetting that the Russian army is learning new tactics in Ukraine. Speaking at the hospital, Mr. Putin added that Russia is re-equipping itself for war faster than the West is, and he is right. Russia does not have to mount another full invasion to wreck NATO. A provocation against, say, a Baltic state could prize apart the alliance's pledge that an attack on one member is an attack on all. Were Ukraine to fail because of a lack of Western resolve, especially in America, challenges to the United States, including by China, Iran, and North Korea, would become more likely. If Russia is a threat and Ukraine can win, then helping it is not a waste of money. That 61, it says BN after 61 so I'm assuming that's billion. If that's $61 million to help Ukraine, some of which is anyway spent in America and NATO countries, it is just 6.9% of America's defense budget. The EU's spending on Ukraine is a tiny fraction of its member states' GDP. The cost of reestablishing deterrence against Russia would be far greater than the cost of backing Ukraine to win. So would the extra cost of defending American interests around the world, including against China. An actual war with Russia, with its risk of nuclear escalation, could be catastrophic. No longer can Western leaders leave the talking to Mr. Zelensky. They need to make the case for getting Ukraine cash, and they need to make it now. Briefing Joe Biden. Biden or bust. Biden's chances of re-election do not look good. The Democrats have no plan B. Sitting presidents do not tend to abandon bids for re-election. The most recent to do so was Lyndon Johnson in 1968, and that is a year that his party, the Democrats, would rather forget. Johnson was unpopular. The country and the party were divided by the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. After a surprisingly strong challenge in the first primary, he stood aside only to, release, only to unleash chaos. One of the leading candidates to replace him, Robert Kennedy, was assassinated. The nomination was eventually awarded by party grandees to a man who had not won a single primary, Hubert Humphrey. In the end, the Republican candidate, Richard Nixon, who had been widely considered unelectable at the beginning of the year, won convincingly. He went on to do more damage to the presidency than anyone, bar the Republicans' likely candidate this year, Donald Trump. Mr. Trump, too, should be unelectable, owing to the 91 felonies with which he has been charged in different parts of America. Yet Joe Biden, the incoming president, the incumbent president, is so unpopular he may well lose to Mr. Trump.
There have been occasional calls for Mr. Biden to step aside, like Johnson, but there is no sign that he is willing to do so, and no guarantee that the Democrats would end up with a stronger candidate if he did. For that reason, although many Democratic operatives have grave misgivings about his candidacy, most are keeping quiet. As one puts it, if you're all stuck on a boat of questionable seaworthiness, it is natural to wish for a final, finer vessel, but unproductive to poke holes in the hull or stoke a, mut- a, mu- a mutiny. It is Mr. Biden's feeble polling that is seeding the angst. The Economist's poll tracker for the Republican primary puts Mr. Trump more than 50 percentage points ahead of his nearest rival, making him the prohibitive favorite. A polling average for the general election compiled by Real Clear Politics showed Mr. Trump ahead of Mr. Biden by a margin of 2.3 percentage points. This is well above his showing in the past two presidential contests, in which he consistently lagged in the polls. At this point in 2016, Mr. Trump's support was seven points lower. He trailed Hillary Clinton by a margin of five points. At this point in 2020, he trailed Mr. Biden by five points. With most states so partisan that they are not worth contesting, the presidential campaign will be centered on six, where the outcome is actually uncertain. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Early polling in these states also shows Mr. Biden several points behind. And some Democrats fear that these polls may be underestimating Mr. Trump's support because his conspiracy-minded voters may not be open with those taking the surveys. Underpinning Mr. Trump's strength is a broad political shift. Partisan allegiance in America may seem hysterically entrenched, but in fact it is mutable. White working-class voters powered Mr. Trump to victory in 2016. In the years since, the non-white working class has begun to shift too. Between 2016 and 2020, Hispanic Americans, once fairly loyal Democratic voters, moved 18 points toward the Republicans. Black men are also slowly peeling away from the Democrats. Only the influx of white college graduates has kept the Democratic Party competitive nationally. These Democratic These demographic trends are sizable enough to determine the outcome of the election if they persist, and they do appear to be. The latest polls indicate higher support for Mr. Trump among African-American and Hispanic voters than he enjoyed in 2020. It seems like the 2024 polls right now are 2020 trends carried forward, said Patrick Ruffini, a Republican pollster. Secular trends aside, there is plainly a problem with Mr. Biden himself. The president's net approval rating is negative 16 points, according to several public polling averages. That is notably worse than Mr. Trump's at this point in his presidency. 
Voters are worried about his fitness for office. One of YouGov's weekly polls for The Economist in December found that 55% of Americans think that the 81-year-old Mr. Biden's health and age severely limit his ability to do the job of president, including 25% of Democrats. Only 24% of Americans want him to run for president again. Fully 61% of them do not, including 38% of those who voted for him in 2020. Americans are only marginally more enthusiastic about the 77-year-old Mr. Trump's revenge bid for the White House, but they are much less likely to think that he is too old or frail to resume the office. Mr. Biden, after all, did not do much campaigning in 2020 owing to the pandemic. He does not seem to relish the arduous campaign ahead, whereas Mr. Trump appears to like nothing better than rambling on in front of adoring crowds. Four years ago, Mr. Biden reportedly toyed with promising to remain in office for just a single term. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running, he said to a room full of donors in December. When asked how many other Democrats could beat Mr. Trump, he said, probably 50 of them. I'm not the only one who could defeat him, but I will defeat him. There is almost no chance that Mr. Biden will voluntarily abandon his reelection bid. He sees himself as a divinely appointed Trump buster and believes his electoral record reflects that. First, he vanquished Mr. Trump in 2020. Then, in the midterm elections of 2022, when Republicans had expected to deliver a terrible rebuke to Democrats, the Democrats' support held up surprisingly well. The Biden campaign naturally expresses great confidence. If you play poker, which I do, you'd rather have our cards than their cards, said, said Jim Messina, the manager of Barack Obama's successful re-election bid in 2012, although he admits this thing will be really close. The campaign argues that the president has been underestimated before, as in the hotly contested Democratic primary of 2020, when he looked fatally unpopular before suddenly becoming the consensus, consensus candidate. Campaign staffers point to the midterms as proof that Republican candidates who champion abortion and reject the election results of 2020 will fare poorly. They argue cor correctly that polls conducted 10 months from an election are a poor guide to the outcome. Most voters will not devote much thought to the election for months, and the billion-dollar campaign machines are only just gearing up. When Americans are paying more attention, the campaign insists, the spectacle of Mr. Trump shuttling between rallies and court appearances will remind Americans of the chaos of his time in office. Mr. Biden's polling deficit is not insurmountable. Biden World also thinks that with time, voters will give the president more credit for his achievements. The labor market is robust, unemployment is low, and wage growth is strongest at the bottom of the income distributions, reducing wage inequality. Inflation, which has infuriated many voters, is abating without a recession. 
YouGov's polling for The Economist suggests Americans are unduly gloomy. 58% think the country has high unemployment. It does not. 44% of the country is in a recession. It is not. And 40% thinks inflation will be higher in six months. Quite unlikely. The Democrats are hoping that voters will notice that the economy is doing better than they thought by Election Day. But Republicans keep talking about Bidenomics as a pejorative, suggesting that they doubt the topic will end up helping the president. Mr. Biden's apologists also argue, in effect, that he will win because he must. We're going to win because democracy and freedom and the very ideas that make America, America are on the line. We have no other choice, says Quentin Falks, his deputy campaign manager. They see a battle for the very soul of the nation, as Mr. Biden often says. This is a stirring appeal, but only for the converted. A new study by the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group finds that Americans like to invoke invoke democratic norms to chide someone from the opposing party, but are willing to suspend them when it comes to their own preferred candidate. Mr. Trump is also muddying things by deploying apocalyptic rhetoric of his own. He has recently taken to calling Mr. Biden the destroyer of American democracy. Republicans in Congress may pursue a farcical impeachment inquiry against Mr. Biden in order to claim that both men are equally disreputable. Anyway, the end of day's argument cuts both ways. It could be used to assert that the Democrats cannot risk as weak a candidate as Mr. Biden. The party has plenty of non-geriatric politicians who could helm a presidential ticket. The problem is that none of them has dared to enter the primaries, in part for fear that they would not be able to beat Mr. Biden and instead would only harm his chances in the, po- in the general election. Only little-known politicians such as Dean Phillips, a Democratic congressman from Minnesota, have put themselves forward. President Biden, a man I respect and I think a person of decency and integrity, is perhaps one of the only Democrats who could lose and probably will lose to to Donald Trump, explains Mr. Phillips. He says he is merely saying the quiet part out loud about the president's advanced age and unpopularity. As reasonable as Mr. Phillips' criticisms may be, his challenge looks doomed keep the faith is one of his catchphrases. He could score unexpectedly highly in the New Hampshire primary to be held on January 23rd, which Mr. Biden is boycotting over a scheduling spat within the Democratic Party. Thereafter, things will be harder. Some states, such as Florida, have in effect canceled their Democratic primaries altogether, declaring that there is only one qualified candidate. The the difficulty of getting on the ballot prompted Robert Kennedy Jr., the son of the candidate assassinated in 1986, to abandon an attempt to stand in the primaries against Mr. Biden and instead try to get on the ballot in the general election as a third-party candidate. 
Even if more plausible candidates saw any hope of defeating Mr. Biden, they are too late to initiate a serious primary challenge. The deadlines to file as a candidate in the primary have already passed in more than 20 states and several more loom in early January. In recent years, the primary calendar has become much more compressed. Most of the almost 4,000 ordinary delegates will be allocated by the end of March, given, giving an insurgent candidate very little time to gain any momentum, all of which suggests that Mr. Biden will easily secure his party's nomination. It is possible, of course, that he might be forced to step aside by what pundits politely call a health event. But such an outcome would not necessarily be providential for the Democrats. As when Johnson declared in 1968, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Pandemonium would probably follow. The party might have to rewrite the rules of the primaries to allow more candidates late access to the ballot. But even so, the campaign would presumably be nasty, brutish, and short. Only a few candidates with the resources to crank up an electoral machine at short notice would be able to compete. Kamala Harris, the vice president, would be the presumptive nominee with the institutional support of the party behind her and perhaps even Mr. Biden's endorsement. Democrats are a hierarchical bunch. The last time they denied a vice president seeking the presidential nomination was in 1952. The unfortunate man was Harry Truman's deputy, Albin Barkley, a septuagenarian whose abysmal eyesight required documents to be set in inch-tall font. But Miss Harris, who ran a disastrous campaign for the presidency in 2020 that ended before the first votes were cast, would almost certainly attract challengers. Only 36% of Americans think she is qualified to be president, according to YouGov. Only 23% think she would beat Mr. Trump, including 43% of those who voted for Mr. Biden in 2020 and just 3% of Trump voters. Although it would be awkward in an identity-conscious party to attempt to step over the first black and first female vice president, some rivals would probably be willing to take the plunge. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is plainly clamoring for the chance to be president, though he denies it, and has built a formidable political machine. The governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, has both ambition and an inherited fortune worth billions, but the modern Moderate governors, whom many Democrats see as best placed to take on Mr. Trump, such as Andy Beshear of Kentucky, Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania, or Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, might not have enough money to hand to, to, hand to compete properly in a suddenly open primary or enough time to build a viable campaign. The biggest political talents in Mr. Cap. Biden's cabinet, such as Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, and Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, would probably have to resign if they wanted to enter the fray.
A coronation of Ms. Harris might simply be unavoidable. If Mr. Biden were forced to abandon his bid for the White House after lots of primaries had concluded, the confusion would be all the more intense. The big party's rules for nominating a candidate are fiendishly complicated, but in essence they require a majority of delegates to back the winner at a national convention. For Democrats, this will be held in Chicago in August, the same city as the traumatic convention of 1968, where police brutality dispersed in, where police brutally dispersed anti-war delegates. I'll start that sentence again. For Democrats, this will be held in Chicago in August, the same city as the traumatic convention of 1968, where police brutally dispersed anti-war protesters outside while beleaguered delegates debated the way forward inside. Normally, most delegates are pledged, meaning that they are expected to reflect the outcome of the primary in their home state. But if they are pledged to a candidate who is no longer in the race, they are treated much as superdelegates, the 746 party grandees who get to vote as they please. If Mr. Biden were to withdraw after winning a big share of delegates, candidates to replace him would be forced to woo the party's politicians rather than its plebeians. The convention would revert from its present form, a four-day bout of pageantry, to its old-fashioned format, four days of haggling in a smoke-filled room. Hans Noel, a political scientist at Georgetown University, argues that a contested convention is more likely to produce a candidate able to unite a fractious modern party than the current sports tournament system. But most Democratic operatives think the party would emerge more divided rather than united after such tumult. American voters, too, are unused to such such machinations. They have not witnessed such a contested convention since 1976 when Republican grandees plumped for Gerald Ford over Ronald Reagan. If Biden fell ill and were unable to contest the election after securing the nomination in August, the Democratic National Committee, which consists of a few hundred party operatives, would decide who to place at the top of the ticket. Such a meeting has only been required once before, in 1972, when the Democrats' vice presidential candidate, Thomas Eagleton, had to withdraw after revelations that he had suffered from depression and received electroshock therapy. Again, it is likely that the crown would pass, in this instance, to Miss Harris. Mr. Biden appears loyal to her as his running mate, yet her shakiness as a candidate is thought to be one of the reasons Mr. Biden is reluctant to bow out. Mr. Biden's swooning poll numbers leave the Democrats in a miserable predicament. The alternatives that might still be possible are not obviously preferable. When asked whether it would be better if Mr. Biden withdrew, the party's preferred public relations strategy is to pretend that the idea is absurd. 
Mr. Biden's staffers tell heroic stories about the punishing days he routinely endures and insist that he is so alert, informed, and mentally agile that the reporter asking the awkward questions couldn't survive a 10-minute policy briefing with the president. What they really mean is that there is no Plan B. The Decline and Fall of Claudine Gay a combination, a combination of plagiarism and selective empathy did for Harvard's president. When it comes to scandals, the drip, drip, drip kind can prove deadly. Embarrassments accrue, the mess metastasizes. So it was with Claudine Gay, president of Harvard University. Revelations of plagiarism in her academic work were first publicized weeks ago, but more kept surfacing. The latest allegations, published on January 1st in the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative outlet, brought the total to several dozen. The next day she resigned, a mere six months into her post, the shortest tenure in Harvard's history. She determined that this was in the university's best interests. Harvard's provost, Alan Garber, will fill the job on an interim basis. Plagiarism did for Ms. Gay, a political scientist by training. But the pressure on her to step down began with her response to Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th. Critics, Harvard donors, professors, politicians assailed her for not immediately condemning the violence and not disavowing a statement by pro-Palestinian students that blamed Israel. Larry Summers, a former president of Harvard, said he had never been as disillusioned and alienated with the university. A few days later, Elise Stefanik, a Republican congresswoman, called on Ms. Gay to resign. Then, in early December, came her dismal performance at a congressional hearing about anti-Semitism on campus. Questioned by Ms. Stefanik, she and two other university leaders refused to say that calling for the genocide of Jews would be punished at their schools. Amid the blowback, the president of the University of Pennsylvania resigned. Harvard's faculty rallied behind Miss Gay and urged the board to back her. Point-scoring Republicans and meddlesome donors should butt out, went the feeling. It rankled that some critics had, in effect, called Ms. Gay Harvard's first black leader, a diversity hire. But then came the plagiarism accusation. On November 10th, Christopher Rufo, a conservative activist, accused Miss Gay of lifting phrases from other scholars' work in her dissertation without quotation marks. Two days later, Harvard's board acknowledged that it had been notified of separate allegations in late October. An independent view of her work had uncovered a few instances of inadequate citation, but the board resulting in corrections, said the board, resulting in corrections to two articles. Still more accusations followed, filed in two anonymous complaints with the university and published by the Free Beacon. 
About half of Ms. Gay's 11 journal articles, a thin body of scholarship compared with that of her predecessors, were said to contain lifted lines or to lack attribution. None of Miss Gay's transgressions alone appears all that egregious. Nothing like, for example, the data fabricated in the lab test by Mark Tessier Lavigne, a neuroscientist who resigned as president of Stanford University in July. Stanford's board determined that he was unaware of the falsification. But any Harvard student who copies others' work without citing it, as Miss Gay appears to have done, would incur penalties ranging from academic probation to expulsion. The university could not credibly warn students about plagiarism and talk up academic integrity when its own president had been so sloppy. Two of Harvard's last four presidents have now resigned amid scandal, the other being Mr. Summers, whose gaffes cost him the support of some of the faculty in 2006. The latest affair is a win for the likes of Miss Stefanik and Mr. Rufo. Ever more scrutiny will mean that university presidents need to be better prepared for prime time. Miss Gay was evidently coached for her, dis- her disastrous congressional testimony by lawyers with zero media savvy. They also need to be better vetted. The allegations against Ms. Gay predated her tenure. Eleven months ago, an anonymous user posted on ecojobrumors.com, a Reddit type site for academics with an axe to grind, that whole sentences in her literature review were lifted off original sources with no quotation marks. Then, more ominously, this won't end well for her, now that the whole world is watching. The narrative is out of date. Drugs and suicide are no longer killing more working-class whites than others. Most economic theories come and go with little fanfare. Every once in a while, however, one catches fire. In 2015, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, two economists at Princeton University, published a study showing that from the late 1990s, the mortality rate of white middle-aged Americans had started to rise after decades of decline, owing to a surge in alcohol-related deaths fatal drug overdoses, and suicides. This deaths of despair mortality rate has not slowed since. In 2022, more than 200,000 people died from alcohol, drugs, or suicide, equivalent to a Boeing 747 falling out of the sky every day with no survivors. Yet even as America's deaths of despair epic epidemic has intensified, its causes have grown harder to identify. Ms. Case and Mr. Deaton focused on middle-aged white Americans without university degrees. For decades, this group has been able to make a living with no more than a high school diploma, but they were now suffering from stagnant wages and shrinking job opportunities. That contributed to an erosion of social institutions such as marriage and religion. Although Black and Hispanic Americans had been affected by many of the same economic forces, it was whites that were left with particular feelings of despair. The result was drug abuse and suicide. 
This story appealed to many pundits, in part because it seemed to fit political trends. In 2016, Rust Belt states, with a high concentration of white working-class people, voted heavily for Donald Trump. Places where life expectancy had fallen most experienced the biggest swings toward him. The Case-Deaton theory seemed to, to explain why Americans in such communities were so receptive to Mr. Trump's rhetoric and his promises to restore the American dream for the country's forgotten. Many economists, however, were not convinced. Some criticized the researcher's methodology. By adjusting for inflation using the Consumer Price Index rather than the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, for example, the duo overestimated the decline in white working-class wages. By comparing people with and without college degrees, they obscured the fact that much of the increase in mortality was concentrated in high school dropouts, a small and shrinking segment of the population. Some researchers thought the survey data on which the economists relied to deliver at a fast pace. This prompted some addicts to switch to heroin, leading to more overdoses. When fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, entered widespread use from the early 2010s, deaths were highest in places with the greatest access to the drug. As Explanations for the causes of the deaths have evolved, so have theories about most those most vulner, vulnerable to it. An analysis of mortality and demographic data by The Economist shows that the devastation has spread beyond predominantly white cities such as Huntington in West Virginia to more diverse places like Baltimore and New Orleans and St. Louis. And 2010 marked a turning point. Between 1999 and 2010, counties with the highest share of working-class whites saw deaths of despair grow much faster than those with the lowest. Between 2010 and 2022, though, that relationship flipped. Deaths of despair rose by 5.5% per year in counties with lots of high school-educated whites but by 7% in the most diverse educated ones. A decade ago, the mortality rate from alcohol, drugs, and suicide was nearly one-fifth higher in conservative counties than in liberal ones. Today, deaths of despair are as prevalent in Democratic parts of the country as in Republican ones. And since left-leaning counties tend to be more populous, they record 10,000 more deaths of despair per year than right-leaning ones. Indeed, the despair that Ms. Case and Mr. Deaton wrote about can now be found among nearly every, every demographic group. Black Americans are more likely to die from drug overdoses than white. Young people are taking their own lives at ever higher rates. Perhaps most overlooked are Native Americans, for whom the death of despair mortality rate is at least one and a half times that of white Americans and rising. Our data show that such deaths are more than three times as common in the 35 countries where Native Americans 
35 counties where Native Americans make up the largest share of the population than they are in the rest of the country. Where does this leave the theory? We were very optimistic about African Americans in the first paper. There had been no upsurge in deaths for them until two years after we first wrote it, says Mr. Deaton. The facts on the ground have changed. So must the analysis. In 2010, suicides barely outpaced, outpaced lethal overdoses and alcohol deaths lagged just behind. That justified thinking about the three causes of death together. Today, however, there are more deaths from overdoses than from the other two causes combined. This now looks more like a medical crisis than a social one. And if the lethality of new drugs is even partly to blame, America is in trouble. Dealers have started lacing fentanyl with a Chinese-made opioid more than 40 times as potent. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.